I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC, in which your two favorite elder millennials started a whole ass podcast in order to avoid having to call ourselves that. <laughs> Except I'm pretty sure we're now geriatric millennials somehow. Oh, rude. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, no thank Awful. you. Anyway, back to what we are. <laughs> yes. And and the thing is, what we came to discover is that the spirit of Generation BSE lives across all generations, geriatric or <laughs> youthful and bubbling, like our, our lovely Gen Zs coming up behind us. Although you will never take my skinny jeans, Gen Z, die mad. Um, or my side part. In any case, yeah. You know what? I'm coming around. I'm coming around in the middle part, but... That's a debate for another day. Clearly, Kate and I are thrilled to be back from our little mini summer vacation. Um, and we are even more excited to be back because we have a phenomenal episode planned for you today. So you may remember a couple of books back, uh, Kate and I came across a book that we noped the hell right out of uh, called Christy and the Secret of Susan. So that book deals with autism spectrum disorder. And by deals with, I mean butchers. And Kate and I know enough to know what we don't know. I think that was a grammatically correct sentence. So. Um, so we started re- reaching out to people a lot smarter than us and saying, hey, who would be someone that we should talk to? Multiple someones that we should talk to. What, what can we do to learn more? And what voices can we, can we listen to? Because I think if there's one thing we've re- all really learned in the last year or hopefully should have learned in the last year is that shut up and listen, uh, is one of the best ways that we can be allies. So that's what we wanted to do. And, the number one thing that people came back with was, oh my God, you need to check out the Neurodivergent Rebel. They are incredible. Wouldn't it be amazing if you got to talk to the Neurodivergent Rebel? And so Kate and I went on a little bit of a deep dive following uh, their TikTok, checking out their YouTube and their amazing blog, and just fell in love. Um, so we are so thankful that Lyric Holmans is joining us today. They are such a brilliant um, thinker and speaker, and um, we're so excited to be able to get to hear from them and and learn through their experience. So before we toss it over to Lyric to learn more, and um, basically she's going to earn her keep. She doesn't know it yet, but she's she's... <laughs> been brought here to to teach us. We do want to take a couple of minutes to do our normal housekeeping so everybody's on the same page with what we're talking about. So, as a reminder, we are talking about book number 32 in the series, Christy and the Secret of Susan. Uh, this was released in March 1990 and written by Anne M. Martin. All right. So, seeing as how bad the book is, I can't wait to see what this back of the book description <laughs> holds for us. Christy's newest babysitting charge is Susan Felder, who goes away to a special school. Susan isn't like most kids. While she can play the piano and sing beautifully, she can't talk to anyone. Susan is autistic. She lives locked inside her own secret world. Christy thinks it's unfair that Susan has to be sent off to school and is treated differently from everyone else. But Christy's going to try to change that. By showing everyone that Susan's a regular kid. Oh, ouch. Um, just to be very clear, regular is absolutely in quotation marks there. So that emphasis, please know, was not mine. <laughs> <laughs> so here, even though it hurts my soul, by showing everyone that Susan's a regular kid, too. 
And then maybe Christy's new friend can stay in Stony Brook for good. I, I mean, as far as drama goes, it's it's on track, but it, it I mean it has all the problems of what the book has, so it's kind of at least not it, even it worth getting leans into, into yeah. its terribleness in its summary of what actually happens. But yeah, it's it's not overly dramatic because the book isn't overly dramatic, but yikes. It but it I mean it is, but in a in a very strange way. Right. So, it's not overly yeah. dramatic in the way that some of our recent books have been overly dramatic. <laughs> not the same kind of like kid overly dramatic. Right. Exactly. This, this feels more like adult exaggeration in a way that's a little unusual for this series. So, well, I know I'm, I'm excited to get into all of it. So, Kate, why don't you do us the honor of reminding us what actually happened? Oh, oof. honor. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was a tough one to write. And I... I was editing it over and over and when you had finally started reading and I was still trying to fix it and see if there was some way to, we figured out immediately it was a terrible idea to just talk about it ourselves, but I was still just trying to like, maybe I can like write this in a way that I don't feel terrible reading it whenever we talk about it. And (laughs) fingers crossed, I've been able to do that. I know I'm, I'm not going to feel great, but for purposes of everyone listening, knowing what's happening as we get into the real conversation, here goes. So the Christie-specific plot. Although the quote-unquote foreign family does move into Marion's house in this book, more on them later, Susan is actually the child of a family that lives around the corner from Claudia. In a storyline that was likely at least somewhat influenced by Rain Man two years earlier, the Babysitter's Club doesn't know her because she's been at a quote-unquote special school as a result of her autism, which Christy comes to learn about during her three-times-a-week babysitting job for the month before Susan goes to a new school. Susan is described as being nonverbal and without the ability to connect with anyone or anything around her, and as someone who uses both visual and auditory stims, but also a quote-unquote savant when it comes to playing the piano and singing, including being able to memorize a song after hearing it once, and knowing which day of the week a specific date occurred. It's an extremely problematic... It's an extremely problematic plot overall, particularly looking back from 2021, but for purposes of this summary, items of note include Christy deciding that Susan should be at home and making it her mission to prove that she belongs there by making Susan some friends in the neighborhood, other children treating Susan as a literal freak show and charging money to go in and see her quote-unquote tricks, and Christy ultimately sort of admitting that Susan's family knows what is best for her and that they're doing the right thing, but also deciding that she wants to be a special education teacher when she grows up so she can work with kids like Susan. Christy learns basically nothing from her time with Susan and her family, even with specific explanations and descriptions provided directly to her. Even, like, this is me just adding on, like, the descriptions in this book are not good in any way shape or form Mm -mm. but christy doesn't even get those versions of descriptions and explanations and it's very frustrating so babysitter's club specific plot the subplot here involves the hobarts the australian family that moves into marianne's old house there are four boys with reddish blonde hair in the family including one named ben who is 11 that mallory immediately gets a crush on which is luckily mutual by the end of the book the kids in the neighborhood initially make fun of the hobarts due to their accents and the different words they use but ultimately the boys all make friends or potential girlfriends in ben's case and start to feel like they belong although james's new friend is one of the bullies who also treated susan terribly but for some reason that's fine with everyone because james needed a friend any friend also everyone in the neighborhood knows crocodile dundee and it's literally their only reference for australia you know that feels pretty accurate of 1990s suburbia that, that was all i knew of australia Fair. that and bloom and onions which are about as australian <laughs> as you know i am so 
Very true. Oh, okay. So with that unpleasantness, which, by the way, you managed to explain it without having to get as much of that awful taste in your mouth with using a lot of the language that's that's in the book, mm-hmm. um, which, spoiler alert, half of my notes are just words underlined, like, what the fuck? So as I was reading through my notes again, I I was not shocked, but shocked to find the li- how many times I specifically wrote, I hate this. I wrote, I hate this at least <laughs> seven times in my notes, if possibly more. I, I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Even just rereading my notes just uh, brought up the anger again. So it's been this very weird dichotomy of how excited I am to introduce our guest and how uh, much I hated this book. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on the exciting part and welcome the fabulous neurodivergent rebel, Lyric Holmans. Yay! Yay! Oh my gosh, you had me blushing during that intro. You're so sweet. (laughs) Wow. is all true. I told her I promised I'd wait till we were recording so she'd have to know I wasn't lying. Yeah. Yes. It's they, them, just a remind, easy, quick reminder. I know it's like... Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you, yeah. Eric. I apologize. Oh, no. It's all right. It's a, it's a fairly new change and people are still adjusting to it. <laughs> so in my work life, I am a business development trainer and every time I make a mistake in the classroom, I claim it was an actual learning experience so I could model behavior. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to claim, I'm going to claim that that's what that was. I intentionally use the incorrect pronouns so I could model how to accurate, how we could have an interaction based on mutual respect and just saying, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Works for how me. That was. <laughs> Let's teach oh, the people something. Oh my something. goodness. <laughs> You you would think it that shouldn't be that difficult. If I can hand, trust me, if I can handle it, you can too. So I promise I will do my very very best. Thank you. So lyric, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you've come to be a part of this amazing work. Yes. So I describe myself as a late discovered, multiply neurodivergent adult, and by late discovered, I mean. I didn't find out I was autistic until I was 29 years old. I'm also, I have an ADHD diagnosis that wasn't officially uncovered until I was 33. So I spent most of my life, I'm only 34 right now, not knowing that I was neurodivergent. Although, of course, I knew my brain worked differently. Uh, and, you know, when you go about in the world knowing you're, you're struggling and you, you struggle with things that other people take for granted. And sometimes it's like, they think is simple, you know, so that's air quotes because simple is very relative were sometimes very difficult for mm-hmm. me. But at the same time, uh, there were things that I had skills that I would pick up that made me appear to be very skilled and would also as a young child, especially like I taught myself to read when I was like one and a half years old uh, and I had a very wow. large vocabulary. I was hyperlexic. Uh, so it's like my reading and writing comprehension was, and it still is, especially you can see it when I'm reading foreign languages is much better in, in, in text than it is spoken. But as, as a child, it was much more noticeable and it caused people to overestimate me because words and mm-hmm. vocabulary were one of my first obsessions, how they say um, autistic people sometimes have these skills. It's really it's just whatever we're passionate about, we can get really good at it because it can be all we think about and we're really devoted to those mm-hmm. skills. Uh, but, you know, some of us have skills that, you know, aren't particularly useful or we may not be nurtured and we may not have skills. We're regular people just like everybody else. And I'm sure we'll get into that in the book, mm-hmm. too. Um, 
But all of this, you know, a lot of the bad stuff I was really hard on myself for before I learned I was autistic uh, because I thought I was a broken neurotypical and I was trying to conform to those standards in that box. Uh, but I've been openly queer you know, since I was a young person. I That's never something I even hid. I never even came out to my parents because I never thought it was necessary to give an explanation because mm-hmm. to me it was normal. <laughs> Although, you know, I, I didn't start to really come out and figure out my gender until getting diagnosed autistic uh, because it's like all of the the masks and the, the expectations and the desire to try and conform was like, I had no longer care anymore to try and conform. I knew I wasn't a broken neurotypical and I was like, well, why am I trying to act like something I'm not? And then, you know, it's like, Oh, gender, why am I trying to act like something I'm not? <laughs> it all just kind of yeah. fell apart at the same time. Uh, and, and I've been sharing, you know, my experience with the world because when I found out I was autistic, it was in it like almost like an enlightening moment in my life. Uh, and I, I realized that it would have been very different if I would have like gone to Google first and seen all of the bad language and all the stigma and all the bad things that people said about being autistic. Uh, but like when I was diagnosed, the person that diagnosed me recommended I read and listen to autistic voices. So I was set in a good path. But then when I ran out of resources, I went to Google and it was horrible. It was gloom and doom. Mm-hmm. It was all one-sided, talking only about our weaknesses, only about, you know, the problems. And it was like forecasting horrible things about children. There was nothing really for adults. There were, I was trying to find autistic voices because that I related to, but I didn't relate to the medical narrative that paints autistic people as broken, lesser neurotypicals that need to be fixed. Like that, I didn't relate to that. It didn't speak to me Mm -hmm. and my personhood. Uh, And so like I kind of started my blog, uh, The Neurodivergent Rebel, uh, as a way to kind of combat some of that and bring the humanity back to the neurodivergent experience. And because I'm a person, you know, I'm more than just my diagnosis, but also being autistic and having ADHD, it, it impacts every aspect of my identity from my gender to the people I love and interact with and socialize from my hobbies things that interest me, um, you know, how I socialize with other people, uh, how I spend my time, like all of those things are influenced by being autistic. And so if I wasn't autistic, I would not be the same person that I am today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can't remove that piece of me without having a very different human being left behind. Uh, and, and that, and that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. Uh, and you know, it's hard because if, if you, if you, if you, if you're learning to love yourself, that can be very empowering. But if you're at a point in your mm-hmm. life where you maybe don't love yourself so much and then all of a sudden maybe you've got this diagnosis, uh, you, you could go the other direction and you might start to hate yourself more, you know, if you, mm-hmm. if, if, you, especially if you're reading, a bunch of gloom and doom telling you autistic people can't do this, yep. can't do that, can't do that, will never do that, will never, 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 never. Uh, or if you're a parent, you know, you're in that same place. If you have a newly diagnosed child, you are, it's like, you, you've got two roads. You can come to the light side or go to the dark side. You had a fork in the road where it's like, are you yep. going to let the information empower you with how you nurture and empower this child to do things the autistic way and let them be the very best version of themselves, whatever that looks like, because it's very different from person to person. And, you know, you can't know what the kid's going to look like, even when they're like 10 and under. They, they'll make look very different as adults. Some of us are very late bloomers. I look very different as a kid mm-hmm. uh, than I look now. Uh, but if you go down that other route, you know, and you believe your kid's never going to do this, never going to do that, 
you don't realize that you are pushing those messages onto your child and they're internalizing the things they'll never be able to do. And so they're not going to try to do things because they're going to feel like they're incapable and they shouldn't even try. And, you know, they'll believe and internalize these lies about themselves. And then they, it'll become like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, uh, it's unfortunate because we have sometimes have like, you know, doctors and medical providers and they're telling parents like their kids are like two, your kid might never talk. Your kid is two. Like my baby mm-hmm. sister doesn't have an autism diagnosis, but my sister didn't even start talking until she was four. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. didn't even start. She just graduated university. You know, she didn't, you know, she, she had a little speech therapy mm-hmm. when we were younger, but you know, she didn't have a bunch of intensive interventions and she's a very bright girl. She's very quiet, <laughs> quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm the noisy one in the family. Yep. I'm the mouthy one. <laughs> you know, there tends to be one of each. Uh, but yep. you know, she did better in school than I ever did. Uh, I, I, I'm the one that struggled in school and got in trouble all the time. Oh, that's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I so resonate with a lot of what you were saying. I, I was diagnosed, uh, ADHD as an adult as well. And even as, uh, I was, well, I was diagnosed as an adult, but it was still nearly 10 years ago now, Kate. I was just thinking mm-hmm. about that the other day. Isn't that crazy? So even in those last 10 years, things have really changed. So I mean, thinking about how revolutionary it was when I got my diagnosis, because realizing, you know, the way that women are not considered in ADHD diagnostics, the way that that is is looked at differently. But even then it was looked at as, okay, well, this is now something you have to deal with. Let's talk coping mechanisms, blah, 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 blah. And now my therapist is approaching it with me as, well, yeah, there are things that you may have to cope with, but also it's giving you these superpowers and how can we use those superpowers? So that perspective really means a lot to me as, as something that I'm just now trying to er- unlearn some of those negative messaging. So I love so much that you're doing this work to help hopefully future generations of of parents and and children go through none of that and just stay at that self acceptance space. Yeah, I I just wanted to jump in cuz one of the your TikToks lyric I really loved when you were talking about you have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder but that's not necessarily how everyone would label themselves. So a diagnosis is not necessarily an identity or a label. And I really, I just had to call that out because that was one of the things I like really loved watching all of the various TikToks and things that you've put out into the world. Because I, I think a lot of people, like you were saying, get sort of bogged down in a diagnosis and what that means and what that doesn't mean and sort of taking on, taking it on as a sort of a, a, a quote unquote bad thing. But, you know, if that's part of who mm-hmm. you are, how you identify as that, it, it's important, but it's not the only part of you and it doesn't have to be a detriment. And I, I, I just love that. So I just had to say that, Rip, so I didn't forget before we stopped talking. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And then that's important. You know, it's, it's neither good nor bad. It just mm-hmm. is. It's just an explanation for it's like, you know, my strengths mm-hmm. and weaknesses. You know, it's, I, I can do things other people can't and they can do things I can't. And when we work together, that's like neurodiversity. It's that diversity in how we think and interact with the world that means it doesn't matter like if I'm a crappy proofreader because somebody else there's a lot of people that are good at proofreading so who cares <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. you know it's it's the diversity yeah. makes it more harmonious if we all work together and appreciate and afford each other you know one thing I, I do want to kind of mention is like I, I it's exciting to talk about you know I how being neurodivergent actually make some of the best parts of who we are, even though it also can make some of the most frustrating parts of who we are. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But 
like the superpowers thing, I I liked a lot at first when I was first diagnosed, but then when I it started to make me more uncomfortable because it almost really? feels like sometimes there's this pressure to be super all the time, and oh, if we're not super. Like, what if we're just, because we're just, we can be just regular people, right? We, neurodivergence, yep. just like neurotypicals, we have a spectrum where we can be fairly average to exceptional. And some of us, like, if we have additional marginalizations in life and hard times as we're growing up, especially, and we don't have the support we need, like, we may not succeed and we may have a hard time getting anywhere in life. And, and a lot of that, you know, is, it, it doesn't mean the lives don't have value if we if we aren't superheroes, you know, and that's kind mm-hmm. of a theme in the book, yeah. too. Where they kind of exploit Susan's uh, abilities because, oh, look, mm-hmm. Susan has these skills and now Susan's valuable because Susan has a skill. But what if Susan didn't have a skill? Would Susan not be valuable then? Because that's really sad. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Wow. That's really interesting that you mentioned that about, you know, having to prove something or uh, that that superpower being of, of worth of some kind, because I, I know it's not the main point of what we were talking to, about today, but uh, we were going to, we're definitely going to talk about it a little bit more in, when we get to the random observations, but they're on top of being terrible around um, ASD. There's some not great Jesse stuff, which of course all goes back to our favorite dealing with racism, the nineties way, which is to say not at all, <laughs> but when Christy is introducing the Ramses, she uses some really strange language around how, but now they've realized there's nothing to dislike about the Ramses, as if they needed to prove that there was nothing wrong with them, that they were worthy of being seen as okay. Even as Christy was saying, it's not good that people treated them this way. She seemed content to say, well, they've realized that there's nothing wrong with the Ramses, so it's all right now. Right, like it would have been okay if there was something if they weren't able to prove how great they were, it would be okay to treat them poorly. And that's also not okay. Well, it was like guilty. It's guilty until proven innocent, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Until you bring something to the table, until you have, Mm -hmm. uh, like we were, like you were saying, until you have something to offer me, then, then, then why, why bother with you? So so that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's awful. And, and that really, I think the the relationship between Christy and Susan, I think exploitive is probably the perfect descriptor of it because Christy in no way takes into account Susan once the entire book, mm-hmm. the over and over again, Christy's only concern is herself, how she would feel about this situation, how she would be um, if she were Susan, if she, how she would feel if su- she were Susan's parents, uh, you know, and, and it's really fascinating to me because I think that they, Anne M. Martin and everyone from top to tail who saw this book and allowed it out into the world, I, I believe that they genuinely thought that they were being empathetic, but that's not empathy. That's pity. Empathy is not about how you would feel in someone else's shoes. It's about understanding how they feel in their position. Mm-hmm. And Christy never once looks past her own nose. And I think for me, above and beyond the portrayal of ASD, that is to me what, what why I hate this so much. Because I can forgive some 
ignorance in terms of like, yes, our, our knowledge and, and skill set around things have developed quite a bit. So we could be just having a conversation about how much our our understanding of ASD has developed since then and how wonderful that is. But the problem is it's not just that it's outdated knowledge. It's how that the entire fact of the character was treated as a uh, as about Christy and not about them as a whole human being, like you were saying, Lyric. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's actually some of my notes because, you know, looking at this, that's a really common theme. In disability and for autistic people is having our stories told about us instead of letting us tell our own stories. And often when you have narratives that include autistic people, they're not autistic narratives because they're the perspectives of people mm-hmm. around autistic people, mm-hmm. usually parents or caregivers. Uh, and so then when we have like a story where we're telling a story in a narrative, you see the person who has a disability is then used as just like a plot device uh, and other characters mm-hmm. kind of make them into their pet project. And they're not really treated as full people. They're, they're mm-hmm. used as like, oh, look at this yeah, sideshow, you know, kind of hinted at that earlier. Uh, and they're, they're not, they're not, they don't have autonomy there. And it's like, unfortunately, you know, we see this in stories, but the sad thing is this happens in real life a lot too. And this is also the other thing when I was recently diagnosed going to Google, I was trying to find firsthand perspectives of other people's voices like me. Cause one of the first things I read was like an anthology of autistic uh, adult women telling their stories and they were at all these various life stages and points in their life. And, you know, you can relate to at least a little bit of every single one of those stories, uh, because it's a first person story, even if, you know, they're very different from you because they're still autistic. Uh, but then when I go to the internet, it's either medical narratives, psychologists, therapists, doctors talking about autistic people. And that's like the worst or it's mm-hmm. parents and a lot of times there's some there were some good parent blogs out there but a lot of them were parents who had been told by their doctor that you know this autistic kid was going to never amount to anything and they bought into that narrative and people online like drama and like they kind of like pity a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and so it's about it becomes about the parents pity like, poor me, I have to take care of this autistic child and this child makes my life so difficult. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is hard to care for someone. But when you do that, you know, you think about the fact that you're making this child feel like they've potentially ruined your life by existing. That's very cruel uh, kind of a feeling to put on a child. Uh, a child who has a disability especially which is already going to be having a hard time to kind of find their place in the world because the systems in place are going to be working against them they need the parent to be the person that lifts them up and reminds them that they're capable even when the world is telling them that they're not and if coming from a young age you know they're essentially told by their parents that they're incapable of doing things you know it's that self-fulfilling prophecy we talked about earlier mm-hmm. yeah Wow, that's really it, it. It's so crazy how much gets set into pattern when we're so young, and how crucial that is. And you know, on the one hand, it is encouraging that they were at least attempting to, you know, talk to kids about this at a young age. It's just disappointing that it wasn't a- attempted with more care at all. And uh, but at the same time. One of our ongoing themes is to be fair with our criticism because we're coming from a place of love and that, you know, we want the books to be their best. But it's also 
in being fair, not clearly, as you pointed out, unique to the Babysitter's Club in, in how they have represented a, a character in this way. I, I think what was been interesting for me out of as I've been preparing for this and thinking about it and, you know, trying to look at what other representation we see in the media. Oftentimes I've noticed that a character with some kind of neurodivergency of any kind is often there as a means to an end for the main character, where it's not even that they're there as a sidekick or they're as not the main thrust of the mer- narrative, but they're there as a tool, as a uh, a lesson that needs to be learned or growth that needs to be happened. Kate, I know you called out Rain Man mm-hmm. earlier. I know this was something you were thinking a little bit about if you wanted to pick up on that thought. Yeah, well, it was just as I started reading this book, I really was like, when did this come out? When was Rain Man? And because it it really did, it wasn't obviously quite the same. And I haven't seen Rain Man probably since I was a child. So I, I don't remember. I probably should have rewatched it because I knew we were going to be probably talking about it. But, you know, that is a perfect example of what you're talking about. I mean, we we do get a little bit of, of Raymond's character, but it's really more a story about whatever Tom Cruise's character's name is and how he has to sort of deal with Raymond and, you know, figuring out how to try to, you know, get the money and, you know, coming to love him and becoming a better person and blah, blah, blah. But it's not Despite the fact that the movie is called Rain Man, which is, you know, the nickname for Raymond, the autistic character in that movie, we don't really get anything from his perspective and we don't really get any care given to how he's feeling in any moment. It's really all about Tom Cruise, you know, wanting to do X, Y, and Z, wanting to get to this place, wanting to do this and forcing Raymond out of his comfort zone and where he feels safe and protected and, you know, with the various pieces of clothing that he likes to wear because they're what he's used to and they feel good. And it's just, I feel like if I went back and watched that movie now, I would have a very different perspective. And again, I was watching it as a child and I hadn't ever met anyone at that point that was autistic, or at least that knew that they were autistic or presented in a way that seemed, you know, quote unquote, different from me. But I have a feeling that if I watched it now, I would feel very differently about that movie. And because I remember it being like, oh, what a, you know, fun story about two brothers going on a road trip. And one of them's a little bit different. And it's just, Mm-hmm. The fact that it really is just always, if they're, for the most part, and I, I don't know, I haven't watched the show Atypical, which I think is on Netflix. I don't know how that is presented, but I'm, I'm pr- fairly certain that the main character is, uh, you know, has autism spectrum disorder or is neurodivergent in some way. So I don't know if that maybe is a step in the right direction, but it definitely seems like in the past, the stories are very much about a person who is, you know, dealing with or, I guess dealing with is the easiest way to say it, but, you know, dealing with someone in their life that is neurodivergent in some way and you never really get the perspective of the person who is neurodivergent and what they need, what they're feeling, what they want. And it's it's frustrating looking back and, you know, going back to what you were saying, Lauren, like we we do need to cut a little bit of slack, I think, but this is just another example of the people at Scholastic or Anna Martin or whoever was involved in, you know, finalizing these books or even coming up with the stories initially, like there was no one in the room that said, hey, maybe we should talk to someone who actually is, you know, to use the parlance of the day, autistic, or that at least has some experience with autism as, you know, the same way that we talked about, you know, Jesse being introduced as a character. And was there even anyone in the room that was a minority of any kind, let alone black? So it's, it's just one of those frustrating things where they think, this would be a great story 
but then they don't, you know, follow it through with actual information and actual input from someone who has experience with that, you know, being that type of person and whatever that might be or having that history. And so it gets, it gets frustrating looking back <laughs> because we see mm-hmm. that we're not getting, you know, they didn't take those opportunities. And obviously it was a very different place in the world, but it's still frustrating. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Atypical because, Lyric, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. I did watch the first season of Atypical. I thought it was mostly fine as a show, and, uh, but I didn't, I don't have enough experience to really speak on the representational aspect of it. But I noticed that over the past couple of years, what I hear most about the show isn't about its ASD portrayal, but it's more about the queer love story between the main character's sister and their girlfriend or partner. I I haven't watched. I'm not sure of their exact orientation. So apologies if I've misrepresented anything. And I thought that was interesting. So I did a little bit more looking just to see what the general consensus was around the representation. And it it seemed pretty mixed. And so I was just wondering, like, sort of twofold. One, if you had any thoughts about atypical in general, and but in a bigger sense, what is the state of representation right now? And most importantly, is there anything that you recommend that we sh- that we should be watching that is celebratory and sensitive without, you know, having to be the tragic version of things. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, representation hasn't gotten much better recently. You know, we've had, you know, atypical, we still, it's still another straight white male autistic. I honestly, I tried to watch it. I wanted to give it a chance because I usually like things that are on Netflix. And I think I only managed to watch two episodes. It, and I had, and this was a while ago, like it was when it first came out. So uh, maybe I need Mm -hmm. to try to go back and rewatch and put into why it gave me so much uncomfortable feelings. And I, it just, I I think what initially in the first episode, I felt like it, he, the character read a lot like a symptom checklist more than mm-hmm. a person uh but you know i didn't give it very much time but i it just it felt it felt wrong to me and it seemed like it was more in the first couple episodes i did see like it was a lot about his parents and his his mom's uh thing and they were kind of she was if i remember correctly because it's been a few years she was going out and cheating at the beginning of the thing oh yeah and i think it you're was right. like implying that life is so hard with an autistic kid that she's been driven to mm-hmm. cheating and i she needed an escape yeah and i was like i i can't i can't do this i can't it was it was like this is and so i don't know if it improved or got better but that was just so much of a put off for me that I, I couldn't get into it because it's like mm-hmm. okay this is already like put, there's already had bad stereotypes saying that oh you know autistic kid's gonna ruin your marriage and uh you know you'll uh you know so it's like oh here we go right it's like the first scene in the first uh first episodes we already see this trope that it's gonna ruin your marriage you know so i think some of the best representation we've had has been like in some of the children's tv shows <laughs> You know, lately, like there's like some a show really? called like Pablo. Um, I think there was another one recently called Hero Elementary that came out, and I haven't seen the seen Hero Elementary yet. But they're trying to have you know a little bit better representation. You know, the Good Doctor. I I really struggle with the Good Doctor because I feel like Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like okay, yes, he's autistic. They're really like that turning up that savant thing. Lots of expletives 
there. And mm-hmm. it's what's not believable to me is like, yes, there are a lot of autistic stereotypes that things we sometimes struggle with. But even if things are unnatural to us, by the time we're that age, we've experienced some things and learn like tricks to deal with things. And like, it's as if he's had no life experience at all. And it's just been turned out into the world, which he's gone through med school and all of these other things at this point. So, like, the character wasn't very believable. He's very robotic. And, mm-hmm. um, like, I, I, I only got into, like, one or two episodes of that, too. I tried and I was like, I can't do this because I wanted to watch it to analyze it, even if I hated it. Like, I, at least Rain Man is only one movie. <laughs> so I right. could watch the whole movie. And get through it. And, you know, there's so much to say about Rain Man. You know, that, that could be, that could be a whole episode of something. We've been talking about when we have guests on, we want them back, have us read a book from their childhood, but maybe we'll have you back and we can just tear apart Rain Man for an hour. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That that actually would be kind of fun. We could talk about Benicula. (laughs) Love Benicula can be a twofer. Benicula and Rain Man bashing. I used to think I was I was a vampire and I slept in a cardboard box. It was my coffin. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so sad that Katie Schneller is not here to join us because Katie is one of our other closest friends and uh, has been a, a previous guest. I had a bunny in college and she always called poor Tobias Benicula every time she Aww. saw him. So that that was one of my favorite books when I was little. Mm-hmm. Oh, love it. Oh gosh, I I don't even like it know what to even talk about specifically with a lot of the Susan stuff because it's so maddening that I'm like, I don't even want to go there. But as you know, Kate brought up a lot of the more awful uh, instances of the misunderstanding and mishandling of Susan's abilities and limitations. For you, Lyric, what would you say is the most common way that ASD's misunderstood or misrepresented either in this book specifically or as a greater whole? I I know you've already mentioned like the symptoms checklist. I've definitely have seen that before. I have to admit, I did not even think about that in terms of atypical with the mom's cheating plot. I I rolled my eyes at it as another typical, you know, like, oh, good, another cis boring middle-aged white couple going through midlife crisis. Seen that a million times before. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just acknowledging that my own perspectives uh, didn't even really register that so i can't wait to hear what else i'm missing yeah well you know especially with characters like susan this is this is uh really important is the misrepresentation in media of autistic people tends to have the most harm on the autistic people who are the most vulnerable so that is going to be autistic mm-hmm. people who have additional disabilities autistic people we can range in our communication abilities. I'm hyperlexic. So, you know, in the meantime, while y'all are speaking, I'm typing up things I'm going to read to you when it's my turn to talk. Uh, and then I'm reading them awesome. uh, because the, the trying to organize it without typing it out in advance. Luckily I type really quick would be harder for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and other autistic people, they may not speak with their mouths at all. And that doesn't mean they're not understanding everything you're saying. That doesn't mean that they couldn't, if they were given a keyboard or an alternative communication device or an opportunity to learn to communicate, they wouldn't be able to do so. Uh, but especially this was like 1990, I think, for this book. Back then, and even now, sometimes we see autistic people who are non-speaking dismissed as 
being not incapable of understanding or not communicating, which is really harmful. Mm-hmm. So then we see they're automatically discounted and assume that they won't be able to learn. So nobody teaches them to communicate. Nobody tries to encourage them to communicate. No one tries to teach them to read or write any of those things because sometimes doctors used to tell parents, Oh, these kids are, you know, mentally challenged there, you know, because it, 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 the, um, what, what people don't understand, I think is one of the biggest myths about the inability to get the words out is often it's not the language, although it can be because there are multiple disabilities that mm-hmm. people can have in addition. A lot of times it is mm-hmm. the ability to send the muscle to the mouth to coordinate the movements of the mouth correctly to get it to do what you want it to do. You may know exactly what you want to say. And it's like on the inside, you could be screaming on the inside, knowing what you want to say, uh, but you can't make your mouth do what you want it to do. And I've experienced this. If I've got really, really anxious, uh, had a panic attack or something like I can know exactly what I want to say, but I can't make my tongue or my mouth move. Like last time I had the worst panic attack of my life. I was on my way to a Christmas party. I didn't want to go to, but I felt like I had to go to for a job that was killing me <laughs> and I had a panic attack and then after the panic attack for 20 minutes I sat in the car like watching the clock wondering when I was going to be able to use my mouth again like I'm just sitting there like looking at my partner looking at the radio playing on my phone trying to talk every now and then my brain was working fine I just I had lost the ability to even move my mouth and that happened that's happened to me under stress wow. since I was a little kid it landed me in special ed when I was little because I was anxious about reading aloud in front of other kids uh, but you know, once they finally figured out how to test my, my reading ability, they figured out, oh, this, this kid is reading at college level in first grade. Uh, so the kid can read, but they wow, thought I couldn't yeah. read because <laughs> I was so anxious. I would lose my ability to speak when it was my turn to read in circle time or whatever. Wow. That's fascinating. I just saw a TikTok recently where someone was trying to explain that the differences in people that are nonverbal, I should say. I'm, I'm trying to say non-speaking because nonverbal kind of implies you don't understand the communication and the words, whereas they, they understand. They're very com- most of them are comprehending. Mm-hmm. It's just they are not able to physically speak. So that, you know, you know, I say people don't speak with that. their mouths, you know, they, cause they speak with their keyboards. They have a lot to say. People who do not speak, <laughs> like we do a lot of, like I work in a lot of panels with other autistic people and there are non-speaking autistics. We try to have them at the table whenever possible. And often they'll type out what they want to say and then we'll have someone in the group read it for them. And they always have the most prolific and poignant things to say. Also because, you know, they're the ones that are dismissed and over, Mm -hmm. like underestimated the most. They get underestimated. I get overestimated. People think I'm capable of more until like I start to struggle and then people like start to think less of me really quick when I start struggling. They're like, you should do better than this. Look at you. You were just doing this. You're lazy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but like people who, who don't communicate the way society is used to, they're underestimated a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes at perfect sense. I, that's, that's really fascinating. And I, I love the way that we are all hopefully as society. I mean, are to, I really taking the time to think about the language that we use to talk about things and how we describe them. And I think that there's just a much more powerful understanding of just how powerful words can be and are and how we think about things, how we talk about things really manifests in how we feel and experience them. So I love that we are taking the time to, to really look at 
how do we want to approach this? So you mentioned like the difference between nonverbal and non-speaking. That's a perfect approach. I know that one of the things that comes up a lot around neurodivergency is, is how to refer to people, how to refer to things. I know like person first has been, there's been some debate around that. Do you call someone autistic? Is it a person with autism? Do you, is it autism? Is it ASD? Do you have any thoughts about how those things are are developing or how basically if someone wants to be as as sensitive and as uh, correct as we possibly can be, what would you recommend in terms of learning, better learning how to how to frame our language? I have many, many, many thoughts. Uh, before I share my personal thoughts, I have a little bit of a disclaimer that these these are my personal thoughts, and though I have a lot of insight on what is tends to be popular by majority of autistic people, because I am very involved in communities, and we've done many polls, I've seen polls other people have done, so I know what the data says. But regardless right. of what the data says, each and every autistic person is an individual, and they're going to have Mm-hmm. different feelings and different reasons for identifying the way they do. And it's just like if someone is LGBTQIA plus or any other uh, part of their identity that impacts them in many ways, I, I don't want to ever tell someone else how to identify because the reasons they mm-hmm. choose that are going to be very personal to themselves. And they may be at a different place mm-hmm. in their lives with how, like we talked about, you can go down two roads. You can feel like autism has limited and ruined in your life. And if that's where you are in your life, you're going to feel very different about how you identify with being autistic than if you realize, oh, this is just part of who I am. If I live an autistic lifestyle and accommodate myself and have all the support I need, life ain't so bad, great, you know, then it's it's much different. But some of us have been beaten down a lot because of being neurodivergent and being different. And some of us, uh, you know, have struggled more than others. So, you know, just think about that variety of experience. However, many, 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 many polls I have seen, my own polls I've done with thousands of autistic people, uh, and even Autism Speaks did a poll, and autistic people shared it and voted in it, and it tends to be in the 90% range or higher. People prefer autistic if given the choice of mm-hmm. autistic over person with autism. Almost every poll I've seen it. I've never seen it below 88%. And when I do see it go mm-hmm. lower, it tends to be when they have a poll that has three question options, so it's like autistic with autism or other and then that kind of throws it off because some people will say oh i prefer to say on the spectrum uh i lately Mm -hmm. since i was diagnosed with adhd as well as being autistic i say neurodivergent a lot more or multiply neurodivergent a lot more because there's a lot of different intersections between being neurodiverse there that i think impacts me without with more than just being autistic those does and then still also mm-hmm. though there i i know there is no shame around being autistic or having an ADHD diagnosis or any of that that language is medicalized language that is tied mm-hmm. heavily into the narrative and the medical narrative and i was autistic before i was diagnosed autistic I just didn't have the language or mm-hmm. understanding that I was autistic. And so I was living a lie because I was trying really hard to fit myself into the neurotypical boxes, that square peg round hole problem. I was really just destroying myself because, you know, I, I was an ugly duckling in a swan story. I wasn't made to be a neurotypical. <laughs> uh, and, and I needed to know mm-hmm. I wasn't neurotypical. But 
if we look at the medical model and the medical language, it kind of just tells you you're a broken version of a regular person and you need to adapt yourself to fit into the systems of society. And neurodiversity is more like, oh, well, let's change society's systems and make systems that work for everybody. And let's celebrate how we're all different. And even those of us that need support, let's just support those people so that they can be the best versions of themselves, whatever that looks like for that individual. And that's going to be very different from person to person, especially autistic person to autistic person. Wow. It's almost like people are individuals and should be treated as such. And <laughs> like, huh, well, crazy, crazy thought. Well, with neurotypical people, we seem to know that. And that that's a human experience thing. With every human, we're all unique humans. But for some reason with autistic people, actually, I know why with autistic people, but because we've Autism is defined in this textbook with this medical label. So people say you have to conform exactly to this book. And the medical label is defined based on young white little boys. It's the same thing you were talking about earlier with ADHD, having trouble diagnosing anyone other than a man. So non-binary women, trans people. Psychology doesn't look at those different populations. Psychology often doesn't look at how uh, things manifest in minority groups who have additional traumas from, you know, having mm-hmm. being multiply marginalized. So psychology doesn't take a lot of these important things into consideration. So those of us who don't fit, we're, we're missed. Oh, yeah. Oh, the sad part is it's not just psychology. It's medical mm-hmm. data as a whole. Like the, the, the lack of testing of drugs on anyone other than a, such a narrow presenting version of the population is it's criminal. Like no wonder things meds don't work for people because they've only been tested on one type of person. Oh, I could, again, that's a whole other conversation too. <laughs> well, it's like one in eight person is supposed to be neurodivergent sex. Cause that includes autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, uh, hyperlexia, you know, OCD. There's a, there's a few things in there mm-hmm. in that neurodivergent spectrum. And all of these are actually more common in autistic people, believe it or not. Uh, so there's a lot of us have multiple uh, stuff going on and our brains are literally wired differently. So yeah, medications impact us differently, but we don't have any science about mm-hmm. why. Like I'm afraid to take almost any medication because if it's got a side effect listed, it's going to happen to me or it's going to not mm. do what it would do in my brain to someone else's brain. And I mean, you know, just think about that. The evidence of like how they give ADHD medications to ADHD people, like how different it is for someone who has ADHD to take that medication with someone who is not ADHD to take that medication. Our brains are different. For sure. So we need more research. That's actually how I knew I was ADHD is because in college when people took Adderall, you know, to study for tests, they all got wired and I got calm and focused. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, is this what is this what this is supposed to be like? That explains my caffeine <laughs> addiction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. All of a sudden things start clicking into place. Mm-hmm. So as as Lyric, as you were talking, you know, you were talking about sort of everybody is an individual, which we all know. But like you said, when it comes to people um, that are neurodivergent, everyone sort of expects them to to be in the same box. And so one of the main things that everyone can do is sort of remind themselves that everyone's an individual. What works for you might not work for someone else. But sort of as a general thought, you know, what what would you recommend that people do, you know, to be a better ally for people who are neurodivergent, whether it's on a individualized basis or sort of systematically? Are there any suggestions that you would have for us <laughs> or for people that are listening? Yeah, well, I mean, really remembering that people are individuals is is a big important thing. Um mm-hmm. 
with autistic people, especially with anyone, uh, because we are so varied uh, in our needs and our communications and all of those different things. And some of us, we may be able to you know, hide or mask our neurodivergence. So we, we learn naturally in life, whether it's ADHD or autism, society kind of shames you for things that are kind of neurodivergent traits, uh, being a little mm-hmm. scattery, not being able to organize yourself internally very well, having the, the problems with uh, sensing time and, you know, just ADHD things, autism things, like struggling with the change in mm-hmm. routine, struggling with mm-hmm. surprises, things I, I literally, it's just the way my brain is wired and I can't help it. But I learned to act like everything's okay all the time. Even if I have a migraine from sensory overload from fluorescent lighting, I act like I'm great and I'm smiling and inside mm-hmm. I'm dying and I want to throw up on someone's shoes, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, but yep. you don't know I'm suffering because I was trained for 29 years that I was a neurotypical that wasn't trying hard enough. So I learned right. to push myself mm-hmm. past my breaking point. And so like I go to the dentist and the dentist is like, you you are you are in pain right like you have a really bad abscess tooth like you shouldn't have waited to come back and this is not safe like how how are you not like crying right now <laughs> right it's like i've had chronic pain since i was 11 and i, I pain is nothing to me mm-hmm. i i operate like this you know I, and i don't express it and like we have the different sensory processing systems all autistic people do and so for me like being very numb and insensitive to physical body pain. Like I'll break a bone. I won't go to the doctor. It's, it's like, a, Oh wow. Yeah. My hands are not shaped the same as each other. Cause I broke my hand when I was, had a roller skating car hop job and I never went to the doctor for it. And my thumb is shaped really funny. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I guess my last like big picture question for you, Lyric, before we do some random observations about the book is uh, I wanted to ask you, as I was trying to think of questions, one of my favorite questions to ask other people is, what is one thing that you wish more people would ask or that you, that people don't think to, to think about, um, that you wish people knew? I think I wish people knew, but they don't think to ask about how autistic people experience emotions Mm. because there's so many misunderstandings and myths about the autistic emotional experience. And in general, many of us describe ourselves as people who experience our worlds, sensory, emotional, all of that in a very, even like our hobbies and passions, all of it is very intense. We are very intense people. Um, and for some of us, like, you know, you, you think about that when they talk about autistic people having these explosive meltdowns, like you hear about that scary part, which that is because we are very emotional and sometimes it just becomes so overwhelming that that meltdown basically is like a fight or flight response being triggered. Like we feel like we are like in danger and like we're just kind of overwhelmed at that point and need to be able to calm and soothe ourselves and reset. Uh, but there's also this myth at the same time, like they talk about our meltdowns, but then they're like autistic people have no emotion. They're like cold robotic robots. And it's like, no, that's not true either. Like a lot of us, we have our really intense emotional experiences and we like, especially if we're masking, like I told you, you don't know if I'm spiraling on the inside. I could be having a panic attack and you'd have no idea. I would just be kind of sitting mm-hmm. quietly in the corner until it was over waiting for it to end. And I'd be like, this is normal. Um, 
But some of us, like our emotions become so intense, we just like shut down and disconnect from them. And we learn to be able to disassociate from our emotions and like, or we have delayed processing. So it's like, okay, this is something that's really intense and emotional and they, we won't process it until like later. So like, I'll be good. Mm -hmm. Like I was on the scene of an accident where a man, you know, had an incident with a vehicle on a motorcycle and that didn't end well for the guy mm -hmm. on the motorcycle. And I was first on the scene and I was calm. <sighs> I'm calling 911. I'm doing all the things I'm directing traffic. And you know, it was a truly horrific situation with fatality. And I was cool as a cucumber in that moment. But a few hours later, eventually when the adrenaline stopped and everything was done, I'm like, I'm just, bawling it finally mm -hmm. hit me yeah. but i seem very cold and emotionless in that moment mm -hmm. because the logical brain is where i stayed in that like in that situation when a, everyone else around me was freaking out mm -hmm. i was the one that was really calm but later i did freak out when it really hit me and i yeah, processed right. it but i didn't process it right then and there so that delayed processing, like that's, there's so many just misunderstandings about autism and our emotions, and our emotional experience. And like, it's, it's like contradictory because they're like, they have these explosive anger episodes. They're yeah. unemotional. Like, which is it? We can't be both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's contradictory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, I think that's really poignant, especially after reading this book when so much is made about the fact that Susan can't, doesn't care. Like over and over again, they talk about, how, oh, you can say whatever you want in front of Susan because it, she doesn't process it. She doesn't even, it, it doesn't bother her. They, you know, talk about how she doesn't even miss her family and doesn't seem to care. And it's not like she has friends anyway because she doesn't have any emotion around it. Oh, and yeah. it, that was one of the most upsetting aspects of the book for me is I was like, oh, this is just. I mean, uh, or the the thing I think that was most upsetting for me, and this sort of goes to that same point, you know, there are multiple times in this book where Christy just stops Susan from playing the piano and picks her up and, you know, tries to make her eat lunch. And the fact that Christy just doesn't even think about the fact that maybe Susan is feeling something and doesn't mm -hmm. want that to be happening, but because she doesn't react outwardly in any way, Christy feels comfortable, you know. Susan's playing piano and playing, you know, the same song over and over and it's beautiful, but Christy doesn't want to hear it anymore. So she just grabs her hands so she can't keep playing and then picks her up. And it, that I think was partially because it was yep. Christy doing it. It was just like, how can you just think that because this child isn't reacting in the way that you think is, you know, quote unquote normal, that this is okay. Oh, at the one point I, I wrote it down because it made me so angry she said she fully acknowledges, you know what? She probably doesn't want to go. I, I used too many she's there. Christy fully acknowledges that, you know what? It's very likely that Susan doesn't want to go, but it's more important that she makes friends. Mm -hmm. And that just really reinforced that, uh, you know, we've had some not great showings from Christy in the past. And this, I, I haven't even really wanted to talk about Christy. I've sort of been avoiding the her of it all as much as possible because, it, it's truly appalling how how this uh, she always has a tendency to, you know, think Christy first, what Christy thinks, and it's all about her will, you know, over others. It needed to be in her control. It needed to be about what her and what she understood and what she wanted. And and it was, I mean, that was I, I yeah. It, 
that's not not okay on any level. Well, he's like they're going to be the savior of this poor disabled person. It's more of that pity neighbor mm-hmm. narrative, mm-hmm. you know, the problems with that pity narrative. Like when you're starting from the pity narrative, you're already you're already ruined it right there. And then it, it just proves more that they don't care yeah. much about the autistic character's feelings or the autistic character's perspectives. Uh, and you know, with autistic yeah. people, our friendships tend to be different. And I I I am someone that the people around me ask for my attention more than I reach out to other people. And I, I like to be alone like so much. I love solitude. I told my partner, I was like, I know you're special to me because I like being with you more than I like being alone (laughs) because I like very few things more than I like being alone. But that doesn't mean I don't want to socialize every now and I have friends and Mm -hmm. it's like, I see my best friend every few months, but I don't see people regularly. Like, you know, my partners or my partner and I, my partners, like we, we go out like on weekends here and there, but I spend a lot of time alone. There's a lot of downtime. I work by myself for the most part. You know, I, I've, I've decided to do projects that let me work, spend most of my time alone because that's great for me. But some autistic people, they're more social than I am. And there are autistic social butterflies out there and they exist. You know, it's just like other thing. It's like all of these different spectrums mm-hmm. we're in. We are a variety of you know, humans, they're, they're aut- autistic extroverts are a thing. I am just more of an introverted autistic human. But I can be, I can be extroverted. And I can definitely ramble mm-hmm. your ear off. That's why this is fun. <laughs> definitely. We're, we're big fans of that energy around these parts. Yeah. Okay, speaking of rambling, actually, that is a perfect transition into some of our more random thoughts. You mentioned the idea that just because your version of friendship may look a little bit different than what we see or what is sort of the typically portrayed best friend media thing, which side note, uh, that's a hill I could die on in terms of how media presents best friendships is harmful in its own way. But whatever, that's a whole other conversation. I actually called out Christy for another way that she was judgmental in the book. I don't know if either of you noted this, but she sort of poo-pooed one of the Hobart's pen pals and said, oh, but that's not a real friendship. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, Christy, who are you to judge what makes a real friendship? Like, I have had pen pal relationships before that I absolutely considered real friends. I have known of at least one person who has maintained a long distance pen pal relationship that has been incredibly meaningful for their life. Uh, I was pen pals with my like childhood babysitter up until she died. Like, those are real friendships. And it's interesting that you said that, that it, you know, like I said, there's not a ton more to say about it than that. But Oh, I have a lot to I say about that. it, though. Oh, good. Then, oh, I love, I don't have anything more <laughs> yeah. to say about it. So well, then it's all yours. Yeah, well, thinking thinking about the, like, this, like, saying, oh, the pin pal is less valid because it's written communication. Like, we see this yeah. with... uh other types of communication where it's like saying spoken communication is the gold standard and dismissing other types of communication. That's ironic because it's especially harmful to non-speaking autistic people or, you know, someone who communicates with sign language, people who do not speak with their mouths. That Mm -hmm. automatically says that, oh, well, if you don't speak to someone using your mouth, then your relationship can't be real. Like, wow, really? Like there's, there's a lot further implications to that too, because, Mm -hmm. Honestly, my written typed out voice and thoughts is my real voice more than what comes out of my mouth if I don't type something up first, unless I'm reciting something I already really, you know, have said a million times. Um, but yep, 
it lets me organize. I'm a scattered mess otherwise. You wouldn't be able to understand me in a coherent way if I didn't kind of organize myself. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, this is why I love getting to talk to people with different perspectives because now you just opened up a whole line of thought for me where I'm like, yeah, because it also implies that physical proximity and it, and I'm, if, if we're talking about a romantic relationship, it, there's the assumption that in order for it to be a valid romantic relationship, there has to be a physical aspect of it. So, you know, if it's distance-based or if there's some barrier to physical um, togetherness. Or what about anyway, asexual people who may not want to be physical? At 1,000%. That's exactly what I mean. That it is, that is telling asexual people that, that that's, not val- that's less valid of a relationship because that's not a part of it for themselves or people who's are physically incapable of having, you know, mm-hmm. sexual relationships that their relationships are, are less valid and less meaningful and less intimate because they can't express it in that way. And that's, wow, that's really, really true. Mm-hmm. There's always those different things that we can see. Undertones that people don't like, it's like, well, this kind of implies a bunch of other things that maybe people don't realize it's kind of implying at the same time. Yep, yeah, that power of language. Well, and I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. And, you know, people don't like people that are neurotypical that don't necessarily think about what other people's perspectives or lives are like. They just sort of assume, well, I speak with my mouth and I communicate with other people with them using their mouths. So clearly that's the best way. That's the only way that really matters. And that's what we were talking about. You have to sort of get out of that, whether you're neurotypical or neuroatypical, everybody's different. Everybody communicates in different ways. Everybody feels different ways. Like stop thinking that your way is the only way. (laughs) Exactly. And and that, but I think we all do Mm -hmm. that. You know, we all assume that everyone thinks and experiences the world the way Mm -hmm. we do. I, I thought everyone thought the lights were so bright and was in pain like I was. And I was just the biggest weenie because I couldn't suck it up and deal with it. Turns out, no, not everyone's autistic. Not everyone has sensory processing just like issues. That was something that wasn't what everyone experienced. And people assumed that I was whining about nothing because they couldn't understand that that really was painful. Right. For me. Exactly. It's so powerful. And it's, it's crazy how often we have to learn that lesson. One of the things that also really stuck out for me was sort of the running, aside from the super disgusting use of the R word repeatedly without, I mean, there's a little bit of interrogation in that Christy does say, don't use that to refer to Susan, that's wrong, but it doesn't really go any farther well, than that. Well, that's actually the thing I mentioned to you earlier, that there has been a change from the original printing to the electronic version. Oh, really? So in the third chapter, when Mrs. Felder calls the Babysitter's Club to ask them to come in or you know, ask someone to babysit Susan three days a week, you know, Christy talks to Mrs. Felder and then hangs up to you know discuss with the rest of the babysitters like they always do. But so in the current version of the book you know she hangs up and you know she says you know i'll I'll call you right back mrs felder and so she christy explains the jobs to the rest of the babysitters club and you know jesse says what did you say is wrong with susan which in and of itself is already a problem because there's nothing wrong with her so there's that framing but then christy says she's autistic i think that's the word mrs felder used but i'm not sure what it means then claudia says is it like down syndrome Christy shrugs. In the original version of this book, rather than asking, you know, is is it Down syndrome, Claudia asks, 
is she the R word? So, wow. so not only, I mean, I, I think the fact that they at least say something in <laughs> the new one is at least kind of a step in the right direction and we don't have our girls yeah. saying it, but yeah, in the original book from 1990, Claudia was using that word and I, I didn't check about the, the part later where Christy says not to use that, but yeah. my guess is that was probably an update too. But yeah, that, that was the biggest thing as I was reading. I was like, wow. I mean, obviously very of its time, but kind of not kind of very disappointing that that it was yeah. being put into these books for kids to learn about other people and just another sort of evidence that you know these babysitter club books maybe aren't doing the best job they can at teaching kids and modeling behavior and telling the full story right that's especially interesting uh, that they did change it because as we've noted, that's not something they do very often. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've, I, the biggest things they've changed have been like references right, in in the past. This is like the most substantial change that is clearly due to, you know, changing uh, understanding mm-hmm. as opposed to you know some weird. I, so I guess I think it's the most meaningful change that we've had. Yeah, so far, and there, right? I mean, there Would have definitely agree? been instances in the past where this word, that word, had been used and it was updated. So I think that's a pretty consistent thing that when they went from the original version to the updated version, you know, however many years later, that was one of the sort of consistent updates they made. But like you said, there haven't been that many. So I guess at least they did this one. I mean, it's still disappointing, regardless. Yeah. Well, the, it's interesting that that was that same place because I had pulled that about the Down syndrome um, reference because I don't know if if that is true then now in this older version, but they that's sort of a running through line where they refer to Down syndrome a couple of different times. Mm-hmm. And at one point they explain Down syndrome. You can hear the anger in my voice rising and the extreme leaning on the quotation marks here when they use the word docile that people with down syndrome are typically docile and i'm sorry but that is a word used to describe animals mm-hmm. not human beings and i i can't even like i can't even so i'm going to go back to focus on the fact that i was uh, i wondered if maybe the fact that they kept referencing Down syndrome as a point of reference, I mean, was because of Life Goes On and Corky and how big he was as a cultural moment. Mm-hmm. That started in 89. And so maybe that that was, you know, what they thought kids would. That's something that they, like, could point to and recognize. And I just thought that was an, an, an interesting note. I don't know. I think we're more like people with ADHD than... Oh. Down syndrome a lot of the time like that's something that even the people doing diagnosis have a hard time telling the difference in when they're trying to diagnose people Mm -hmm. so whereas the other like is is even a visual difference for a lot of people so there's like i i don't see them as comparable no no Uh, definitely not though though it's they're both neurodiversity and there's nothing wrong with either um, but it's just sad that they had to that that the idea of autism was so foreign in 1990, even that the representation was so lacking that they had to point to something like Down syndrome, which had representation. You know, again, we can talk about whether or not 
representation in terms of Corky is good or bad. I, it's been a long time since I watched that show, so I can't speak mm-hmm. to that at all. But even but they they thought well people will know that and that's what they thought to point to even knowing how incredibly vastly different the two situations are mm-hmm. and and like you pointed out in in all of these vastly different ways and it just goes to show the lack of respect and care that it's you know let's point to this thing that is in almost no way related but falls under the same like enormous blanket term terminology of neurodivergency and good enough, you can understand what autism is if you have watched Corky on Life Goes On, you know? Yeah. Just uh, 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 so frustrating. Well, at least they didn't compare being autistic to having cancer, because I've seen that done <gasps> multiple oh, times. Oh, wow. yikes. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, because so. that's the same thing. That could Ugh. be worse. Yeah. Just, yeah. Ouch. Isn't that awful that no matter how bad things are... <laughs> We can usually find a worse example. Always. Kate, Lyric, did either of you have any other random observations that didn't really fit with any of our already discussed topics? Oh, you know, just thinking a little bit more about that relationship piece where we were talking about earlier, you know, trying to force an autistic person to have, you know, a neurotypical relationship style with other people. Like a lot of us, like we, we do, we do and can bond with other people, but I don't tend to bond with people over very shallow things. Uh, but like if we're working on a project together, that's one way. Like I like to bond and spend time with people or like sometimes with like my partners, it might just be we're doing our own things together separately in the same room mm-hmm. and we're playing on our own near each other, you know, and we're, we're just being present in the room with each other. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily look like interacting in the same way, uh, cause not all of us like want to have shallow chit chat. Uh, yep. even, even those of us that are info dumpers that'll yak your ear off and ramble on about facts with you, you know, sometimes that, that's, that's not us all the mm-hmm. time. Although you can get us going and then we have non-speaking autistic people too, you know. Right. I love that. Ugh. I'm a, I am super, extroverted and a talker if you haven't noticed by now and even i every once in a while one of the reasons i love kate so much um and a number of our my other closest friends are people that i can just sit with and shut off with for a little while and i think that's an underappreciated aspect of friendship mm-hmm. i think kate and i both have one last random thought mine i just wanted to circle briefly back around to Jesse and the racism that we mentioned earlier, I said that there was another aspect of it above and beyond them having to prove their worthiness of being accepted. Later in the book, well, we haven't really talked about the Hobarts at all, which I'm fine with it, you know, as is often the case with these books, we've mentioned many times, disconnected B plot, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't horribly offensive, though they did try to over um, emphasize the we're different to aspect of it that got icky, but all in all, not, you know, not the worst thing ever. However, they were talking about some of the names that they had been called moving in. And Jesse points out that you would not even want to know the names that they were called. And that is the very closest we have come to the N word uh, in reference to Jesse in these books. Um, and it was, it was pretty, pretty loud for be not being not said, you mm-hmm. know? So I just wanted to make sure that we 
we noted that as we try to be conscious and note all of those dog whistles that that may have been there intentional or not. So hopefully Kate's is is a little bit more fun than mine. <laughs> I uh, so I'm I'm sort of going back and forth on whether it's fun or not fun. I think it's sort of interesting in this book. We get obviously the typical description of the members of the Babysitter's Club and of the Babysitter's Club itself. One thing that is maybe sort of not interesting so much as, of course, this is how it goes. Like the description of the Babysitter's Club is very, very Christy focused and how she came up with the idea. And Mm -hmm. it's very descriptive. But the thing that I think is a little bit more unusual is the descriptions of all of the rest of the members of the Babysitter's Clubs. The, The descriptions of each of the girls is, are very, detailed and kind of very focused on their looks. For example, mm-hmm. you know, Dawn is drop dead gorgeous. Um, when she's describing Marianne, she says, I don't think I'm as pretty as Marianne is. Like, it's very strange yeah. that she's saying these things. And also, like, it's, it's it feels gross. Like, I don't like it. <laughs> yes. And and there's a big emphasis on that with Susan as well. Mm-hmm. I, I she could be I a model. Babysitters Club stuff, but yeah, exactly. I I noted that, and I was like, ooh, that's there's some weird ickiness there, as if you know she's more worth our consideration because she's pretty. It, almost the implication that that makes her more tragic, right? But that was a trope has been a trope since the beginning of time, right? Pretty people dying. That's what we like to see. Isn't that the whole point of a uh, love story? <laughs> it's more tragic when they're beautiful mm-hmm. and young and in love. Patriarchy <laughs> strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always. We could be here for hours with mm-hmm. all of the, the different stuff. And which speaking of that lyric, we cannot thank you enough for coming along and, and sharing your incredible voice with us mm-hmm. today. We're also really lucky we are going to have the opportunity to speak with another, hopefully, fingers crossed, going to be able to speak with another amazing guest who does sensitivity reading um, from an autistic perspective for a living. So um, and we're going to get to have some conversation around media and representation. And we'll we'll be releasing that as a very special episode coming up here. So we're excited to continue to bring more light and and amplify more autistic voices. So thank you. You are so welcome. And we're definitely having you back to talk about Benicula. So <laughs> yes. oh my God. put a pin in that because that is definitely happening because this is this is a great conversation. And I would I, I'm sure Lauren feels the same way. We would both love to have yep. you as back as many times as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well. Okay, well, I guess any other final club business before we wrap this up? Lyric, why don't you tell our fine listeners where they can find more of your amazing work, including those awesome roller skating TikToks? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm very easy to find. Uh, My website's neurodivergentrebel.com or neurodivergentconsulting.org. I'm on every social media outlet as neurodivergentrebel, with the exception of Twitter, because the character limits, it's at neurorebel. Uh, but neurodivergent rebel everywhere else, including on TikTok. Some of the skating stuffs on Instagram too. I think if if you if you want to see the skating, I try to make it somewhat educational and talk about why movement is important to me as a neurodivergent human. This ADHD and autistic people kind of know about about that one. Mm-hmm. We got yep. we got to stay active. <laughs> Definitely, and they're so soothing. It's like hypnotic. I I uh, I was like transified earlier. It was wonderful. 
Well, I watch a lot of those like sand cutting and slime oh, videos. Yeah. And, like, you know, I love those like videos, those so relaxing hashtag videos. Yeah. And so that is me trying to make the roller skating version of so relaxing. So it sounds like maybe I'm on track. So you yes, are 100%. I think you are very successful in that. So keep up the good work on that because definitely so relaxing. <laughs> Okay, well, and I guess if you want to follow the podcast, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Generation BSC. You can also email us at generationbsc at gmail.com. So with that, I'm Kate Plasek. And I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say hello to your friends.